Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they live in another city around the world. This week, we had the pleasure of traveling to El Salvador to discuss youth soccer pathways in El Salvador. I pulled this show from the archives and I was really fascinated with two things. Number one, how huge soccer is in El Salvador and the role and the important role that high school soccer plays in El Salvador. We all know about the debate of high school versus club soccer in the States, but in El Salvador, there is no debate High school soccer is extremely important and very massive. So I encourage you to check out that show to learn about the soccer pathways that would be available if you lived in a particular city in El Salvador. Now, this show is uh, sponsored in part by Anytime Soccer Training. Anytime Soccer Training is the only training app with over 1,000 training videos and over 101 fun soccer games and all of this content is 100% follow along. And if that wasn't enough, it also includes hundreds of skill challenges and we're constantly adding more and more content. Now, having thousands of videos is sort of a double-edged sword because it's great that you have a thousand videos because we follow a, low, a, a slow progression, which means we do one move per video to make sure the child gets it. And then we combine that move into a review video. And then we practice that move across the spectrum of content. So if you're working on the V-pool and the ball mastery, soon you'll have a V-pool in the line cone dribbling, and then there'll be a V-pool in turns, and then there'll be a V-pool in the 1v1. And so in V-pool and passing and so forth. But the only problem with that is, and I've listened to your feedback, it can be difficult for people to find specific sessions they're looking for. And so what we've launched this week, and we're going to add about 10 to 12 of these, are 30-day player journeys. And, and the name says it all, right? So the player journeys are going to take some of the best content from each uh, section in the curriculum and put it into a journey of, uh, uh, that fits and is customized to a specific need. So for example, the first player journey we created is just getting started. So we took the best beginner videos from each um, section. So the best dribbling, the best ball mastery, the best this, and put it into a getting started folder for you guys. And this is where any player using the program needs to start. And there'll be other player journeys like um, dribbling player journeys and 1v1 player journeys and that kind of stuff. And that's gonna make it a lot easier for you guys to find certain content if you don't, if you're not crazy like me and want to do, you know, all 1,000 uh, or have your kids follow the step-by-step -step progression of all 1,000 videos, which is also always available. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more. You can see the challenges there. You can see our programs there and you can join for free. Now, 
let's get on to the show. So this show is being recorded during our Thanksgiving weekend. And I was joking with um, a loyal listener and now friend of mine who said to me, Neil, if you want to increase sales, it shouldn't be very hard in my case, you have to sound a bit more positive. And you know, I thought about that. And he is absolutely right. As a matter of fact, in my day job, I've coined a phrase, and I actually taught my wife this phrase, that has an acronym that I made up called ASAP. But it's not A-S-A-P, it's A-S-A-A-P. What does ASAP stand for? Always sound and act absolutely positive. So I really need to be more positive here. And, I, and so in that theme of being more positive, before we start with this show, let me share with you guys a few things that I am thankful about. I am very thankful about um, the new friends I've made online and many of you I've met in person. I am very thankful about the community on the Anytime Soccer Training Facebook group that you guys are helping to build. I'm thankful for the fact that we can have a civil discourse. We can disagree um, vehemently, but the next day, you know, we wake up and we're friends. I love the personal messages. I love the text messages. I'm a debater, period. I'm a debater. That's just my personality. If And so on the Facebook group, you get to debate the owner of Anytime Soccer Training. Hopefully one day that'll mean something, but right now it means nothing. But if, you, if, if you're inclined to share ideas and challenge ideas and challenge, pop in when you feel like it and pop out when you don't. But please, guys, just remember that's just my personality. I can't do anything about it. I am also thankful for knowing that I am not the only parent that struggles with some of these ideas. And in, in many circles, when you talk about the struggles you have in youth soccer, um, the responses can be a bit condescending or judgmental. I remember this commercial I was watching on um, mental health, mental wellness, or health, mental health or something, app or something. And the actress said, yeah, I have these problems, blah, blah, blah. And I talked to my dad about it. And my dad said, you need to smile more. Well, and the joke was, no, that's not what I need. I need some serious help. Well, that's kind of what happens sometimes in youth soccer. Like if you have, you're struggling with something, dealing with youth soccer, people just say to you, it should just be fun or, you know, you shouldn't worry about it. It's just a game and that kind of stuff. And that's true. But I'm also thankful for the fact that, that we built a community that, that are looking at parental influence, you know, trying to become better parents, um, engage in cultural exchange, engage in idea uh, exchange, and looking at organizational transformation through the lens of youth soccer. I could talk to you about other subjects, but this is what I'm most interested in. And so we're using youth soccer as a vehicle to engage in these conversations in a fun, but hopefully enriching way. So I'm really, really thankful for that. Okay, so before we go off the air and sing Kumbaya, now let's get on to the show. And this show is going to be a, it's going to be a longer one, number one. So um, hopefully you're driving and, and you have time to listen to it. And secondly, I, I think I'm going to have to break this show up into a few parts. So today what I'm going to do is 
Now that I told you that I wanted to be positive, this is going to be one of the more negative shows. And it's going to be neg- my, my negative opinion on a particular subject. And then I think what I have to do is once I list all these negative opinions and follow-up shows, I think I need to break some of them down and offer uh, my take on some solutions and then possibly get others involved in sharing with us stories on how they mitigate some of the problems that I, as a layman, um, believe that I am seeing. Okay, so what is today's show? So today's show is uh, entitled, What in the Heck is Wrong with Youth Soccer in America? So what in the heck is wrong with youth soccer in America? So yesterday on the Anytime Soccer Training Facebook group, and if you haven't joined the group, go to Facebook and search for Anytime Soccer Training Parents and Players, and it'll come up. But on the group, I posted the following quote from Antonio Conte. And if you don't know, Antonio Conte is the new manager of Tottenham Hotspurs. And Tottenham Hotspurs have been known to underperform. They typically have really good players, but they just, for whatever reason, just can't break into the top four and perform at the level of the um, Man Cities, the Liverpools, Arsenal. And in many cases, sometimes they'll have a better team, but they just, they're like the Dallas Cowboys of the premiership. They, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the guys always says, Cowboys will eventually do, Shannon Sharp always says, Cowboys will eventually do Cowboy things. Well, Tottenham will eventually do Tottenham things. So, He's just taken over the job and he had the following quote. After three weeks, I'm starting to understand the situation. It's not simple. At this moment, the level at Tottenham is not so high. And that quote hit me uh, like a lightning bolt bolt because I had a similar experience. Um, You know, it took me three years or four years of watching youth soccer in America through watching my boys, especially my older one, but I had the the same realization that I just sat back and said, I'm not even a soccer guy, right? I'm not, uh, I wouldn't, I didn't touch a soccer ball before my um, boys started playing, but this is just not right. Now it's important, you know, asterisks or disclaimer here to say there's two disclaimers. Number one, this is for entertainment purposes only. So in discussion. So if these opinions are going to make you not like me, please just skip to this podcast and go to the next one. And definitely if it means you're not going to give any time soccer training a try because you don't like me, skip this podcast and go to the next one. But secondly, my views are limited and they evolved. So I'm only familiar with uh, my area and in, in sort of this North Carolina area, South Carolina area, and what I have seen on the East Coast from as high as sort of DC down to Florida. So, and then in the further you get away from North Carolina, the less I have seen. So those are two major disclaimers. But the bottom line is, I happen to believe, and I've been fortunate enough to live in about four countries, and the one thing I learned from living in four different countries was, once you get past the superficial stuff, people are basically the same, right? They're not these, and we'll use a soccer example, they're not these 
22 year old um amazing youth soccer coaches in america and in in england that just don't exist here or they're not these amazing um children in in africa that are not here or these amazing children in south carolina that are not in florida i mean people are basically the same and so i have seen enough to extrapolate this opinion and feel comfortable thinking that the listener and i don't know will identify with some of the issues that i have seen with the understanding that my views are very my viewpoint is very limited and many of you will have situations where you have either solved these problems for your personal situation or your club or team has mitigated these problems. As a matter of fact, most of the problems that I'm going to lay out, our club, the club that my older son um, participates in, has actually either eliminated, avoided, or mitigated these problems. And I got to do another podcast on that. All right. So the issues that I'm seeing in youth soccer in America, now these, this is not in any specific order. This is just me free writing. I, I free wrote it on the Facebook group and I thought, you know what, let me just um, feed the content beast and, and drop this in a podcast so that I could get other, get feedback from people who are really in the know. And I got a lot of notes here. So I apologize in advance if I make some mistakes or fumble around, but it's just a longer show and it's kind of all over the place. So I apologize in advance. So the first problem is I don't know who we're talking about. And what that means is in the States, unlike most places I'm familiar with around the world, we don't have a clear delineation, I hope I said delineation, delineation, delineation. I'm not going to redo this podcast again, so I'm sorry. We don't have a clear delineation between competitive recreational soccer and the professional youth academy system. Now, I know what you're thinking. My club does. We got an academy and we got uh, club and blah, blah, blah. But again, this is what I am seeing. It isn't just not really crystal clear that there's a clear separation between competitive recreational soccer. That is not even really a term that is used and professional youth academies. And there are a lot of definitions for professional youth, youth academies. And I think I'm going to have to break that down, at least my opinion, in another show. But there's not a clear separation. So in other words, uh, yeah, let me go on and we'll, we'll give some examples. So as a result, neither pathway appears to work as intended. And like I said, I consider most of the club teams that I am familiar with as being competitive recreational programs. However, when you say this to people in the youth soccer space, they tend to think you're being negative. They think you're being condescending. Like, no, this is a serious program. You're calling us a wreck, right? It's like a negative thing. But actually, on the contrary, it's a positive. To me, it's a net positive, right? Because one of the greatest benefits in the 
that I see in, in soccer in America is we have an abundance of choice for our children to enter into youth soccer. We have complete rack. We got challenge leagues. We got these club teams, which I consider to be competitive rec. And then we obviously have professional academies that put you on a pathway to become a professional. So that choice is very important. Let me give you an example. My youngest son, he has a totally different personality than my older one. And he's at a different age and different maturity level. So he plays for a club that I consider to be one of these competitive recreational programs. And this program matches his level of engagement perfectly, right? He attends most of the practices and they have two practices a week. But if he doesn't feel like going, he misses it. And it's not a big deal. We don't make a big deal about it. About it. As a matter of fact, my wife loves it when she doesn't have to take him. He makes most of the games and he looks forward to the games, but sometimes he misses the games. Sometimes we're traveling. No problem. Does the club or the coach reach out to us and say, hey, why didn't you come to the game? No. Does the club come out to say, hey, listen, you need to communicate to us? No, none of that. So we, for all practical purposes, we basically do within reason what we want. So we come when we want to come and we don't come when we don't want to come. And that's perfect for for what we are trying to do with um, him. And the most important thing is he enjoys his friends. He enjoys the soccer. He understands he's getting a little bit more than a wreck, but at the same time, it's not so structured or rigorous or has such high expectations um, that is above what he is looking for. So let me take a quick time out and offer one point of clarification. For this podcast, I'm not talking about the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of men and women out there, volunteer coaching and coaching to provide a great youth soccer experience for our kids. This criticism, if you will, and analysis is really directed at the professionals who operate in youth soccer. And within those professionals is really targeted at those professionals and those organizations that claim that they are developing youth soccer players uh, to be able to play at the highest level, whether it be college or professional. And so that's really who we're focused on. I, like most of you guys are listening, are in, listening are in the trenches. We either volunteers or we coach a little bit here and there. And I think most of these programs are absolutely great as long as everybody involved understands what it is. But when we transcend, to, transcend into making claims about long-term development or comparing ourselves to professional academies, then I think we open ourselves up to being um, held accountable and uh, being judged to some extent. And so I just wanted to be clear about that as we move forward. But that is our personal situation. You know, behaving in this way in a professional um, academy environment would be a non-starter. And then there are a few 
other problems, and I'm just going to highlight a few. The kids and the parents that want their child to be in a professional environment are deprived of it if they have families like mine who come and go as we please. And then the coaches who want to implement a professional environment, they, it, it, I'm not, it's too strong a word to say they can't, but whew, the winds uh, are pushing heavily against them because you know they're gonna know that last season or the season before, the parent could come and go and the child could come and go as they wanted, miss a game, come to a game, no big deal. Now you're going to bring them into your environment and same club, same everything. But now you're going to say, All right, actually, we have some rules that are unique to this particular team that, oh, by the way, won't exist next year. Didn't exist the year before. Doesn't even exist for the other teams, but they just exist for mine. Yes, you can do that. But that's a battle that most coaches don't want to fight. And it will actually probably be more of a dis distraction than what it's worth, because at the end of the day, if a person's not coming regularly like they should be and and again we come like 95 percent of the time but i'm just saying if a person is, is only giving you 95 percent effort you may cause more harm than good if you try to squeeze that five percent out if it jeopardizes the enjoyment and engagement of the family when you're in a competitive recreational environment um, um, that has not been explained as anything other than that okay but another issue is, however, though, and I got to give the clubs a hard time on this, the clubs often market themselves to unsuspecting parents as that this is a professional environment when it is clearly not, okay? And when you do that, this leads to all sort of um, problems, especially when it comes to parental expectations. It also places, I think anyways, or it contributes to the behavior of uh, parents to place a lot of unnecessary and negative pressure on their child, right? Because the club and the coach has framed this as a professional environment, has framed this as a developmental environment, has framed this as a somewhat uh, serious, not in a literal sense, but you know, a serious environment, right? And framing is very important. So for example, I frame the same environment that my son is in, I frame it as a competitive rec environment, right? And so that totally released, removes a lot of pressure that he may feel he may have even if it's not intentional um, by me, just by my language, just by how I react. And let me give you, I guess, an example on the other end of the spectrum. Now, my son, my older one, operates in more of a environment that I would um, consider at a minimum models what I would expect in a professional academy environment. So we don't just randomly mispractice. We never do a, a no-show, no-call to a game. We don't even, we don't miss a game. So if we got to, we move things around, right? So we move things around to make sure we're available. We move things around to make sure that we're available for practice. We don't schedule anything Monday through Sunday during the times that you could, that can't be 
rearranged during the times that he could be on the soccer pitch within reason. There's always an asterisk there. There, there are always exceptions to the rule, but within reason. And the professional environment that they have instilled starts with everyone involved having, uh, you know, the staff having a professional mindset. They're being clear and ostensible standards and expectations that must be met or there will be consequences. Now, I don't want to sound too hard to the kids. It's just soccer and they just kind of, you know, roll with the punches. And I don't even think most of them think about it like this, but this is me observing um, within my own children, the difference between two clubs marketed exactly the same way, but one having a totally different experience than the other one. So that you can follow me at the conclusion of each of these, I'll just restate quickly the problem. So the first problem is we don't have a clear separation between a competitive recreational um, soccer and professional youth academies. And that's in, that's, that's um, in stark contrast to the rest of the world where they clearly know this is grassroots and this is a pro academy. I'm playing for this grassroots club or I'm playing for Arsenal and everybody who is in the Arsenal um, pro environment is there for one reason to get signed and that has some disadvantages that we talked about and then people in the grassroots the program are there for one of two reasons to have fun or to develop their skills enough to be scouted by you know in this example arsenal period it's very very easy ours is all over the place so the next problem and i'm warning you this is going to be a long one is and i alluded to it but our clubs overpromise and underdeliver. And not only do they overpromise and underdeliver, I'm going to go on record to say you cannot, or it's at least is I haven't seen it, and it has to be extremely important to deliver a professional youth soccer academy experience when you have more, more, definitely more than two teams, but really you only need one team per age group, no more than two, which is sort of like a reserve, you start getting larger than that. It's just, it, it's almost, at least from what I have seen, impossible. And I will go a step further to make it really clear to say, it's not merely the size of the club, you also have to have a situation where there are more players um, that want to be on that team than you have space available because you got to be able to cut folks. And so if you're promising a professional youth soccer experience and you don't have in your um, standard operation operating procedures, a way, a structured way to exit people who are not with the program, exit people who don't meet your expectations. I just not have, I have not seen situations where you can really enforce the standards and the expectations needed. But when you have these large and massive clubs, which again are not intrinsically bad, I think they're good in some respects because they do a great job of offering a lot of variety and a great competitive rec experience. But when you have these large and massive clubs, 
you have to accommodate uh, and lower your standards to meet the customer, in this case, the parent and player's needs, because you need them to help you cover the substantial overhead. And in addition to that, you got to find loads and loads and loads of coaches who are great. And I'm going to do a separate podcast on a on the difference between a great coach and a coach that's able to produce pro players. Now, you can be a great coach and be able to produce pro players, but you also can be a not so great coach and be able to produce great players. And it gets a little complicated. And I'm going to do a show on that. But you got to get a lot of folks, a lot of staff through the door, and it's going to be a lot of turnover. I just think once you get to a certain size, it's just not, it's just not possible. Now, if you have a club, 20, 30,000 players, and they're doing that, then please uh, let me know. And I know people are going to say the, oh, we do this at Dallas and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I need to see it. So that's why there's no use debating people. I have to see, see what's going on. Because in my area, I can say that um, what they do, if you have 17,000 participants, you're going to find 12 to 13 parent trainer kids <laughs> and assemble them, right? And they're going to be really good despite not being in an um, ideal environment. It's not the other way around. That's what I see. Um, so just take it for what it's worth. All right. So then we go on to the next one. So we talked about the fact that clubs are too big. When you get a certain size, you can't hold people to a standard that's required to have a professional environment and you need those people so you have to lower your standards which is not intrinsically wrong but people but clubs tend to overpromise, and when they overpromise and underdeliver, that causes a lot of pressure on the child and that causes a lot of sort of friction between the parent and the club relationship all right so now we go on to the third issue the industry and in this case i'm talking about the youth soccer industry in general has not and doesn't appear to have the appetite to introduce reasonable accountability metrics, right? And I'm gonna try to speed this up a little bit, but now a lot of these problems are either related or a slight variation to the previous problem. So the size also has plays a role in this. Expectations and standards also play a role in this. But I often say if youth soccer clubs were schools they would all be harvard right where you know i don't want to get political i don't know if we need a the consumer protection agency to come out with some kind of thing to allow us to know if this club is a good good value for money or good club bad club whatever i don't i'm not going to go that far but we need some kind of uniform and, and i hear this player first development blah 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 stuff no we need a, an accountability, some kind of way of measuring um, if the club on a soccer perspective is doing the things that they promise. And I'll leave it there because I actually, um, I'm familiar with accountability metrics in schools, but not so much in youth soccer. So I need to do some research and maybe I'll invite somebody on who knows uh, more about this. But I can say that if you didn't know anything about anything, and if you just went on social media, or you just went on websites, or you just listen to folks, or you listen to podcasts, every youth soccer club in America is Harvard. And that just can't be the case. And so it is what it is. And again, this is the negativity tour. So it is what it is. All right. So the next um, issue I see is the industry, especially the governing bodies of the industry, 
And we're gonna get to that um, uh, again. No, I shouldn't say the government body. That's gonna be the next one. The industry. So all of our clubs as an industry players, I don't even know the right term, but just participants, they don't seem willing or um, motivated or even see the need to implement structure, organizational structural changes to increase the competition amongst the clubs. And we're gonna talk, I'm gonna hit on this one more time later, but remember there's competition among the players, there's competition, there's a lot of levels of competition, but in this case, the competition among the clubs. So from what I can see, the biggest competition among the clubs is on how they market themselves. This is very, very harsh, but they don't appear to compete on mm, putting our head down and producing better players. At least that doesn't, that doesn't appear to be. And I'm talking like this because I don't know, I'm not behind the scenes yet, but that's what it looks like. And so, so, so what that looks like is in, in my city, the, the largest club in my city has about 17K and then another one has like 10. And then I think I'm, another one has as many as 5K. And these organizations, and this, we're not that big of a city, right? I mean, we're big, but not that big. They control, you know, all the fields or most of the fields. They control the leagues. So you can't even join the various leagues and play these clubs locally. They control, not control the coaches, but they are the major um, higher uh, employment of most of the coaches. So you can't really go into a situation bucking any of these organizations. You'll be, quote unquote, blackball. And so this sort of monopoly um, politics and monopoly sort of landscape is just untenable if you're trying to develop um, teams and coaches and players at the next level the, the I think the economics and the, the history is pretty clear that you've got to have a lot of you know competition within the marketplace in order to really produce more and more value all right so in other words that's a fancy way of saying we have a lot of monopolies and they don't seem to have an appetite to change and they don't seem to have an appetite to innovate in or innovate their structures in order to produce more value and better results, especially at the higher echelon of um, youth soccer. Then our federation, so in this case, US soccer, US soccer doesn't appear willing or able um, to implement league structures that produce clear team, and sorry about my alarm thing going on, that produce clear team professional pathways or, or professional, clear professional pathways for teams and clear professional pathways for, for um, players and clear professional pathways for clubs so u.s soccer hasn't come out and said you know what if you are producing players right then 
and or this is a clear landscape if you're producing individual players this is the pathway for them and it's really really crystal crystal clear and everybody understands it if your club is winning in the right way here's a league structure a national structure that you know everybody should participate in and it's clear you know who is doing what and then they haven't gone to the clubs and said you guys you can't control all the facilities, control all the coaches, and then create your little leagues and not allow other local clubs to even compete in them. That just, we got, no, no. They don't seem to be willing to do that, have the appetite to do that, or want to do that. And um, I'm using these terms very loosely because I don't know, I'm very vulnerable here. Maybe I'm sure someone who knows what's going on is like, dude, we talked about this in the 80s. You're, you got it all wrong. And I invite you on the show to please elaborate. So, you know, I was joking on Facebook that Don King would love you soccer, right? Because he would love the confusion um, that comes with all these various leagues and titles and this and that and this whole alphabet soup of club levels and rankings and blah, blah, blah. But at least in boxing, they give you an opportunity to, to do a, a unified bout. So maybe they should at least let the major teams in each um, of these fake little leagues they create join some kind of equivalent of Champions League and play each other. And maybe that exists because my boys are young, so they're not in the national scene. So again, please let me know if I'm what I'm missing because I'm laying this out here now. Um, and I was joking with another friend on Facebook. When you get specific, then you open yourself up for criticism. And that's fine, right? I listen to too many podcasts i read too many blogs where the person doesn't take any risk when it comes to information they just everything they say is so obviously true that you're left thinking i agree with everything you said but we know if, if someone's saying something you agree with everything they say all the time either they're a brother from another mother or they're not um pushing the envelope enough and that's what i'm trying to do with this podcast and this brings me to another problem that we have. In the States, we're one of the few countries, the only country that I'm familiar with, that doesn't have at least some degree of promotion and relegation systems at the professional level on the way down. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that a healthy promotion relegation um, pyramid promotes investment from outsiders who want to invest in a small club, um, external investors, even international investors who want to invest in a small club with the hope that it may be um, promoted to, in this case, MLS. And then it puts pressure on the MLS clubs and other professional clubs to invest in their academies and the grassroots in order to stay uh, afloat and stay in the larger league because it's millions of dollars if they were to be relegated. But my only caveat is, and we're not going to go to a lot of detail in this show, is that the problem in transformation is complicated. It's complicated by the fact that uh, there weren't a lot of economists who came up in this in these other countries and decided to produce, uh, to create pro-relegation and create these clubs in the way they are and the economics the way they are. Strategically, these, these countries have soccer clubs that are hundreds of years old. That's number one. Number two, 
these clubs are massive compared to some of the budgets at MLS clubs. And it's not clear to me that MLS um, clubs have the financial bandwidth to invest in academies in the at, at the level that will be required to uh, produce top players with no financial support from the parent from the age of eight all the way up into um, the first team. So I support ProReal. I think they're definitely, at a minimum, we could do some modifications, some modified ProReal, some baby steps, if you will, where we maybe grandfather in some MLS clubs, but then open um, the potential for promotion for other clubs and relegation for other clubs. I think that will have um, uh, an increased uh, effect on competition. I just don't think alone is a silver bullet that's going to solve many of the problems that we're talking about today. Okay, so here is another one. This the elephant in the room. It should have been number one. That's why I'm saying it's not a specific order. I just free wrote these. We don't have a soccer culture and soccer to me anyways, is not um, popular enough to compete on sort of the global scale, right? Or global in the global um, competitions, right? Soccer as a sport is still to me relatively unpopular. And a couple of the big misconceptions here. I don't think we should confuse participation with popularity, right? And I always use the uh, analogy, everyone in America that graduates high school is forced to take a foreign language. <laughs> but how many of us speak Spanish, French, or German? I know I don't, right? So yeah, so you, so you can't confuse participation with actual soccer popularity. The next thing is, it's Thanksgiving weekend. So turn on your TV and point me to the times that ESPN or these other shows dedicated any amount of time specifically to soccer. It doesn't happen. Another uh, friend of ours, Coach Francis, I said, well, yes, but it's becoming more popular. And he is absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I actually don't worry about um, this issue that much because it's only a matter of time between the immigrant population, between our kids, kids like ours, kids like yours who are playing the game, fall in love with the game. This is only a matter of time before soccer becomes so popular. It won't get to the El Salvador um, level or the England level, but, it'll, but with our demographics and size and money, it'll be popular enough for us to compete on the global stage. But right now, I just don't think it's popular enough. And the coach said, one coach said, um, the same coach said, well, I see kids wearing jerseys and stuff all the time. Well, first of all, thank you, China, for your cheap imports and Amazon for distributing this stuff. That's number one. <laughs> but number two is I can only use my son as an example. And I share a lot of stuff with you guys on Facebook. They will not wear kit from another team other than Manchester United. And there's an exception. Occasionally, a family member will buy them something, and then I will force them to wear. But even then, if it makes them too upset, I don't do it. And like my young one and my older one, they used to every once in a while wear like a Real Madrid or something. But that's mainly because um, because Ronaldo had left and went to Real Madrid. So. Again, you got to look at the ways. 
these the kids, we're just not there yet. I would argue on my younger son's team, if it wasn't for YouTube and all this other stuff, on my younger son's team, whew, I think those kids would struggle mightily to name five or six English Premier League players. I know they would struggle. Let me do it another way. I think on my younger, my youngest son is you not. I think if I had to do a survey, and I would love to do a survey, I would struggle to find five kids on his pool, and I think it's about 30 of them, that have watched at least five football matches from start to finish. I, 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 I think it would be very unlikely. I could be wrong. That's why I'm putting this out there. So we just don't have that popularity and our culture is not there yet. So we're at a competitive wreck. So right now I look at us as being at a competitive wreck level in terms of culture and popularity. And it's going to take a, a while for us to get to where we are actually at a, you know, able to produce, you know, talent at that pro academy level consistently. Okay. So here is sort of, you know, my bread and butter, my broken record, you know, if it's a, I'm a hammer and I see everything as a nail. So, you know, I get it. But there, there appears to be a massive skills deficiency among youth soccer players that no one else that I talk to seems to see. And it flabbergasts me. Like, I'm not a soccer guy. I am not a soccer guy. I know I must be wrong, but no one else appears to see it. I was just at a tournament. I'm going to do a podcast on my tournament experience. And if we, my son was playing in a so-called top bracket and uh, I made it a point to watch all the teams and I even got up early and went to some of the games to see the other top teams in his bracket and this is a small sample size again it's outside of north carolina but it's still a small sample size and if i am being extremely generous of the eight teams i'm being generous there were maybe five that i would consider had the skill the technical ability that would be a, required to play at the next level and have a, you know, at a pro type level. Of those five, only one had the skill to be able to play in, in a center attacking role, right? A center midfield role. The other ones had enough skill to be able to be on the pitch, but only one of them had the ability to really be able to control the ball in tight places and that kind of stuff. And then of those five, only two, and I got them being generous, appear to demonstrate the soccer IQ that I would expect of kids at that age. This is, um, my son's born 2010, so you, you take it for what it's worth. And this is, again, a small sample size, me watching a few extra games and then watching my son's games. And it's also hard to analyze because um, 
you know, what you actually see, there's a lot of variability. So even with my son, he was guest playing, right? So the way he played in the first game versus the way he played in the last game is totally different. So if you only watch the first game, you may have a different impression. That's why I'm saying it's completely unfair. But the analogy I would use is uh, my wife happens to be Ethiopian, Ethiopian. And when she and her brothers moved to England, and they would give them these standardized tests to kind of see what they were dealing with in terms of where should they place them in the, in the uh, sort of educational, uh, what grade and all that kind of stuff. Because the records back then weren't great in Ethiopia. Um, my older one barely missed any questions on the, on the science and engineering and the math stuff. I mean, literally, like you take the standardized test and bear, my wife's older brother, excuse me, barely missed any questions because the the academic standards as a nation at those at that foundational age from a math and science perspective were just lower and if you try i'm assuming this and this is i'm gonna um I'll improvise if you try to explain to a nation that actually your that your equivalent of mit is the kids that graduate from your equivalent of MIT actually are behind in math and science, this would be a very difficult thing and you would sound arrogant. But, you know, it is what it is. And that's why I created a training company. That's why I have a training clinic. That's why we're doing some, um, we're producing training programs with a local um, organization here in my area so i am at least trying to live my conviction i'm not just saying this i didn't create any time soccer training because i saw all these technical kids <laughs> i created any time soccer training because i saw the opposite and i'm like wait a minute this is crazy and so it is i didn't create the clinic because i saw all these amazingly talented um academy kids running around and my kid plays with all these little kids so i don't want to hear about the oh you just watching rec players nope 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 i see them i created it because all these um, kids who had the passion, the desire, and enough skill just weren't technical enough. And then when they get to the game, yeah, they, they do well, but I can see that they're overcompensating for a technical deficiency. And that technical deficiency, I see it time and times again, time and time again, comes back to haunt them later on in their development. But what is surprising me is, I don't know if it's the way I'm communicating it, I don't know if it's, we need to do a workshop. I don't know. I am doing these challenges so we'll have some kind of measures we can maybe compare notes. And I'm not talking, this is not a pissing match on anybody's kids. We're talking about youth soccer in general and transformate and how do you transform an industry? It's not uncommon for there to be a skills deficit in an industry. And I'm telling you, there's a skills deficit in our industry that happens to manifest itself throughout children but there have been skills deficits i'm from south carolina so we had a skills deficit in technology and so we had to modernize our um, educational system and economy so that employees had the skills in order to do modern jobs so as a matter of fact this is an aside my mom was laid off south carolina had this program called dislocated workers program where you could go back to school for free she got a computer engineering uh, associate degree and electrical engineering associate degree because she had a what? A skills deficit. So it has nothing to do with pissing on a match on children or my kid is all that. I am just reporting it 
the way I see it. I share videos of my boys, maybe as a proud papa, but also so you can see what I am looking at and then you can share and we can share and send it to me privately so that I can get a better appreciation of what is out there. Because there is one big asterisk. I do see amazingly talented and technical kids online, right? So many of them are in the Facebook group, right? I see that. So appreciate you guys for sharing that. I just don't see it collectively enough in person. And that may be due to my, again, very small purview. All right, moving right along. As an industry, clubs don't appear willing or able to mitigate some of the most common and potentially destructive conflicts of interest that plague youth soccer. So I said a lot there, but clubs don't seem willing to come up with systems that mitigate conflicts of interest, right? That plague youth soccer. So what are some of the more common ones? Well, winning versus development. They don't appear to be willing to come up with a gaming program that mitigates the conflict between winning versus the need to develop each player individually. And I actually don't think this is a particularly complicated thing to do. And we'll, I talked about it in a previous podcast. I may do another podcast on it. They don't seem willing to mitigate the conflict between individual development and team development. And I actually don't think that is particularly difficult to do. And when we are working with the guys at Sports HQ, we're going to create a program that over the next five years, it's starting with the individual development, but over the next five years, we'll address this um, problem uh, with an academy that we will create. And so that's just a little tidbit there for the folks in the, in the local area. They don't seem willing to, again, mitigate the conflict of playing time versus the need for winning. They don't seem willing to mitigate the conflict between early sports specialization, and I'm going to do a podcast on early sports specialization, and the need and the desire for a child to play multiple sports. They don't seem willing to, to offer any cooperation at this highest echelon level. There is some of this, but still the highest echelon level between allowing a child to get somewhat of a some version of a high school or junior high school soccer experience even if it's modified and that goes for the schools as well and exclusively a club experience these are just a few of the conflicts of interest that they don't appear to be willing to mitigate and in many cases i don't blame them because there's so many problems why solve a problem that many people don't appear to care about number one and secondly, to solve this problem takes a lot of determination, a lot of grit, and it is unclear, you know, the impact it's going to have on development, and it's unclear the impact that it will have on your enrollment and the parent expectations, which we kind of talked about before. But these are common conflicts of interest that I saw very early on that many industries suffer from that I just leave scratching my head like, wait a minute, this is an easy fix, you know, individual training versus team development. You got seven days out of the week. You you are calling yourself a pro style academy. Um, we can fix that one, right? So um, staggered time, staggered days, special days, remediation. We can we can fix that problem. Um, maybe you 
it's a 10 month program, but staggered times also the month of December, half the club is on and half the club is also, unfortunately there'll be no break for some of the coaches, but I mean, there are ways of, so everybody gets a 10 month season, but it's staggered. I mean, there are ways that I think we can, we can work around that. And then here's another pretty obvious one. People, and I always say this, people are cray cray, right? And then parents are a, another level of cray cray because now you're bringing in all this biology and all this chemistry and all this um, anthropology into the situation into these hyper competitive environments of youth soccer that, oh, by the way, are exasperated by the hyper marketing of the clubs and the leagues. So this is a major problem in youth soccer. We got people who are generally pretty crazy. I'm very, <laughs> I'm optimistic on, hum on humankind because we figure out a way to solve the, the big problems, but I'm also pretty pessimistic on our day-to-day you know, day-to-day -day interactions. We're both, we're just crazy. I'm crazy, you're crazy. This is the way it is. We have what we call, if maybe I'll be a little bit more politically correct. We have what you call animal spirits, okay? We have animal spirits in economics. We have animal spirits here in youth soccer. And then when we're put into an environment that plays on the animal spirits, we become as parents even more cray-cray, which can lead to more pressure on our kids, and more destructive behavior. And I'm gonna talk about some of the destructive behavior that I have witnessed with our parents, at least the public stuff. I try to share a few things that I do wrong um, personally, but I'm gonna talk about that in, in ways that I would recommend us as parents try to uh, avoid this stuff. But that's another problem with youth soccer, just parent behavior, parent pressure uh, and, and the like. Okay, so I'm going to conclude with a few honorable mentions. And if you made it this far, I appreciate you listening to this rant. I, you know, I go, I'm in two minds. I want to always say stay positive, but I got to be honest with you. The, the podcasts are a bit of therapy to me because it just gives me an opportunity to vent in my closet to people who have to listen and can't can't respond <laughs> that's always therapeutic and then I'll, I'll i'll debate you guys on the facebook group and if you don't have your own podcast i encourage you to do that even if no one listens to it because it is pretty ther therapeutic to go somewhere and just vent it takes a little bit of practice but you know it's well worth it all right so here are the last few honorable mentions and if you if you if you haven't been listening closely, we're talking about what the heck is wrong with youth soccer in America. So here are a few more honorable mentions. We clubs, and this is no one's fault. This is how I would, you know, this is how I would do things and how we're going to do things with the academy that we're going to create in the future. And that's an unofficial announcement of things we have in store next year. So this is not an indictment on the club. And what I'm going to say is pretty hard to do. So this is not an indictment. So I don't want anybody to take it that way, but this is how I would do it. Clubs don't appear to do a good job of separating the training and learning environment from the gaming environment. And I think if you're gonna have a high level club with high standards, 
you got to almost separate the, the 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 training and learning environment in some respects from the gaming environment. I don't mean the format like the small side of games and that kind of, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all the pomp and pompousness that comes with games, the tournaments and the leagues and all that kind of stuff. So in my club, for example, the youngest of the kids, and I'm not going to say this is intentional, you know, they all have a view, whatever, but they don't even play games. So when my son started, he didn't even play games that first year. He did do a few friendlies here and there, but they didn't even play games. Now, they did things within the club that were fun. And like I said, they had a couple of friendlies here and there, but it was brilliant, right? And because it was so much work that needed to be done, and I'm then putting my hat on, looking at it from their perspective, this could be totally wrong. But those Saturdays and Sundays that you would be spending getting 20 minutes of basically exercising a game and then a few touches here and there, it's so vital to get the kids up to speed on on just learning how to play the game that they didn't even play games. And then they were shielded from all the negativity that we associate associate with the bulk of youth soccer, the screaming parents, the screaming coaches, the micromanagement, all that. You're shielded from that. You're just getting better. Okay. I think, you know, that's pretty much an extreme. And then people will have a view on the role of games. I actually don't, I have a view on games. I'll talk about that later, but um, that might be an extreme, but I do think we can make a concerted effort to separate game the training environment and the training and learning environment and the personnel who are responsible for executing the training and learning environment from the gaming program and the people who are responsible for executing the gaming program that could look like a player pool where only a few players are selected each time to play in a game or a few slate of or um, a player pool where you just organize a few friendlies until the team is ready to enter into a league and and do whatever they do. So that's just one thing. Another thing, and this is again, anytime soccer training founders speak, we don't appear to be as a, a club, our clubs don't appear to embrace technology standardization and process improvements. And I understand that because teaching is a rather liberal profession. I don't mean political, but I mean, think of the Greek philosophers. It's more of a thinking and liberal profession, right? And coaching is just another version of teaching. And then soccer is a very free-flowing game. As a matter of fact, American sports tend to be the exception to the rule in the sense that the sport is so um, coach-centric gymnastics as well but anyway so that that's an aside but but the point is we don't appear to be willing to embrace the bountiful technology tools to create standardization and process improvement so what does that mean like listen and people will have a view on this but between you you zero U14, U15, about 80% of a of a of a training environment, training practice should basically look the same. Not in the same order, 
it will be depend it will depend on um sort of the skill level of the kids blah 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 but it's not some foreign like oh god man man city academy is doing something totally different than liverpool academy or liverpool academy is doing something completely different than my club and there are a basket of concepts people have a view on this and a basket of skills that every player needs to have in their locker even chess with the game of chess which has true trillions and trillions and trillions of potential combinations and outcomes there's still some foundational principles that all master chess players have to learn and understand right and it's the same thing with you soccer i bet if we got a piece of paper we could kind of we could kind of write out there's a basket of skills. You may say 20, you may say 10. I even heard a guy in the NBA, uh, NBA trainer said, listen, there's only five ways to dribble basketball. I think he said pounded, crossover, between the legs and something else. He said, there's only about five ways to dribble the basketball and everything else is just a variation of those five core fundamental ways of dribbling the basketball. And the same thing with team concepts, especially with the, at the youth level. I mean, they're just really only about five different phases of play, right? You're in possession, you're out of possession, the, the times that you in between set pieces, uh, attacking in the final third, defending. I mean, there are, there are, there are just a, a limited number of scenarios. Now the interactions within those scenarios will be infinite, but you we can get our head around what in general are the key components of any, any training environment, any annual soccer curriculum at the different ages. And when we can do that, then we should be able to embrace a degree of technology and stand to the to the um, aid of standardizing some processes. And why is that important? Because again, remember our clubs are already too big, but you're hiring coaches. We already have court coaching shortages. It's hard to find coaches. It's hard to find uh, volunteers as well. And we're not able to give these guys a playbook on what they need to do so that they can just focus on executing. In the area of education, we call this managed instruction. Now, that is not to say this is the only way to do it. There, I did a podcast where saying, hey, nothing is wrong as long as you have some basic stuff in place. But when you're in a situation where you're bringing, you have high turnover, you're bringing in people, you just don't want a situation where, in my opinion, where this first-year coach is constantly thinking about what is the game plan, what what plan am I going to put together today, what what coaching, uh, not coaching, what um, lesson plan I'm going to put together. You want that stuff to just be handed to them, but it has to be, in my opinion, standardized to the degree that's possible, so they can pick and choose and pluck and play, but it's standardized around concepts. And I know. People listening say, oh, we do that. Well, listen, a part of this is, again, saying, you know, I always joke, again, my wife is, Afri is African. If, if you read any African um, constitution, they're, they're the most beautiful documents written in the world because most of these constitutions were written at, during when they got independence, which was relatively new. So they had the benefit of you know, constitutions that were written hundreds of years before. So they were able to pick the best and best language and concepts from all the various constitutions around the world to form their charters and their 
for their independence, right? So beautifully written constitutions, but the ex but it, the execution matters, right? And so that's what happens, at least I see happens in youth soccer. There's a lot of beautifully written curriculums and beautifully written documents and beautifully written articles. And then I go and look at the training and, you know, half the kids are not doing what they're supposed to be doing and then half the kids are doing this and da, da, da. So again, a lot of it has to do with execution and I'm kind of rambling there. So in the club that we're going to create, right, we believe that the first mm, 30, 45 minutes should basically look the same and just follow a logical progression that then takes the child into the next 45 minutes where you have the small side of games, the team concepts, the opposed stuff and that kind of thing. But the first 45, boom, we're just hitting it. We're just, we're moving and anybody who's able to push a button is going to be able to, to know what to do. And then all we're doing now is make, is focusing on expectations um, and execution and teaching and learning. Okay. Um, I did talk about this as an honorable mention. There seems to be a lack of flexibility in the gaming program. That's a fancy way of saying, why do we have to play 9v9 or 11v11 at this age? Why can't we have a, a 7v7 game here, a 3v3 game here, a 10v, 11v11 game here, or whatever that club needs um, for that particular game? It's just, to me, it's just a little bit too structured and i'm not sure if that structure provides any benefit over additional benefit over the flexibility of having it all and the final thing and this is a pet peeve i've talked about a lot as an industry i don't think this is the last one guys thank you for making it this far i don't think we do a good job of educating parents in a way that's insightful actionable practical um comprehensive, not condescending and all the above, right? So um, I'm not gonna go too much into this because I did a podcast on this, but uh, the best analogy I can use is if like, when I first started, um, pick a sport you're not familiar with at all. So for me, that would be like cricket or rugby or, um, <laughs> I kind of familiar with this just from watching the netball or even Formula One for that matter. All of these are sports, and, I, and you've, if you paid attention, they have a common theme. They're they're actually sports that are really popular in England, but sports that I was not familiar with until I moved to England. So when I was when I watched these sports, especially rugby, I I could never see a foul. I could never see a foul. I could never ever tell like what are they calling. And so I sympathize with my non-Americans who watch American football. You're probably like, what? What's going on? Well, a lot of our parents are in that situation with soccer right now. And I feel like the information that's provided to them is too general. It's very condescending um, and not helpful. And because it's not delivered to them as I guess you'd say from a consumer protection perspective, and we'll talk more about consumer protection later. It's, it's, it's presented to them, at least the way I read it, and maybe I'm being too sensitive, is you have these problems that we as an industry are going to try to change and teach you about under the guise of education so you don't disrupt what we're trying to do with your child. I mean, that, that's kind of how I read most of the language. Like you 
you have these problems, right? You gave birth and now you have all these problems. And, and these problems are unique to you as being a parent. And we're gonna educate you on, on yourself and give you a good telling off because the problems that you have, you're bringing into this pristine development environment that we've created and we can't do what we need to do until we educate you on the problems that you're bringing to the table. And we don't have any problems now. And you're not responding to our incompetence. As a matter of fact, we're extremely competent and I'm being facetious here. These problems are your problems and, and you're illogical and crazy. And so we're gonna educate you and hopefully by through our education process, you are gonna now understand what we're trying to do. This is kind of how it's presented to me. And I just don't know if that's the best. I mean, that's not the way I talk to people and that's not the way I educate people about what I'm trying to do, or at least I try not to. I try to give people a lot of insight into if I'm inclined to do it and if they're inclined to learn a lot of insight on um, what it is I'm doing from their perspective. And I really understand that most parent, the most human behavior, a lot of human behavior, I should say, is irrational, but it's very, it's normally very explainable, right? Yeah. And I did a podcast where I talked about like the different weddings and stuff. So there's a lot of irrational behavior, a lot of bad behavior. But mm, when I look at the entire system that the parents are operating in, it's pretty understandable why people behave in the way they do. And, and so we need to, that's not justifying it, but there's a lot we can do to sort of solve these problems. So that, this was a very long one. Thanks for listening. Listening. This was a very negative one. So this, this is the most unthankful, if that's a word, unthankful podcast to do on Thanksgiving weekend. But I hope you enjoyed it again. This is for entertainment purposes. I'm not an expert. Um, and, and, for, and this is just and a disclaimer. I have a very limited view and my views evolve, especially with your feedback. But I did want to publish this for public consumption this hear what you guys have to say. I do. I will share this with folks in the know and see if they'll listen to it and come on the show and help help me um, and help us inform our thinking on what in the heck is wrong with you soccer. This is Neil Crawford. I'm the founder of Anytime Soccer Training and also the host of the show. Check out anytime-soccer.com. Join the mailing list. We'll send you seven free ball mastery um, and dribbling videos along with more content like this you guys have a happy holiday holiday excuse me and let's get better together